This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. It's always my pleasure to talk to you every Sunday night here on the Chorus Radio Network. And thank you so much for being with me. We've heard a lot about postpartum depression. It's often something women suffer in shame. It can actually begin antepartum. So during pregnancy, many women suffer with feelings of inadequacy. Many women ask the question, is this it? This is supposed to be the happiest time of my life. They start to feel anxious. They feel like they may in fact, hurt their baby. They never will. And they understand or they realize or they, once they get help, they realize this is an irrational thought and it's associated as a symptom of postpartum depression. Uh, It can end in tragedy. It's very, very difficult because, you know, mental illness still has a stigma and many women will experience postpartum depression in varying degrees of postpartum depression. And it's one of the saddest things. And, And it's important to reach out for help if you're experiencing some of the symptoms. And you know what? Accept the help. Perfectionist type of women are at greater risk for developing postpartum depression. And those are the type of women that think they can do it on their own. They don't need any help. In fact, they might get offended if um, somebody offers them help. But this is why it's important to be educated about postpartum depression before you have your baby. When you're looking to conceive a baby, it's also called postnatal depression. And postnatal depression or postpartum depression, as it is more commonly known, is a kind of mood disorder that is associated with childbirth, it can affect the father as well. But we're going to focus a little bit more on the mother tonight. The symptoms may include extreme sadness, low energy, anxiety, crying jags, irritability, getting offended, changes in sleeping or eating patterns. And you typically see this, though, there's a typical three-day postpartum blues. Um, but this, uh, when it persists, And it's typically picked up at about one week, uh, between one week and one month after childbirth. This could also have a negative impact on the newborn baby. It's difficult to say what the exact cause of postpartum depression is, but it's typically a combination of physical and emotional factors, hormonal changes, sleep deprivation. That's why it's important to accept that help. Any prior episodes of postpartum depression will place you at risk for another postpartum depression. If you have a history of bipolar disorder, anxiety, a family history of depression or anxiety, a family history of history of alcoholism, psychological stress, any complications at childbirth. That's why it's important for women to talk about their labor experience. You know, women who lack support, maybe they want support, but they lack support or maybe have a substance use issue are also at risk for uh, postpartum depression, a diagnosis of postpartum depression. And the diagnosis is based on a woman's symptoms. Now, it's typical to worry about your baby or be a little bit unhappy after your delivery. Um, but when the symptoms are severe and they last longer than two weeks, it's a sign to get 
help. Or if you are the father or um, the mom of of a woman who's just delivered a baby or a friend, and you notice these symptoms, encourage her to get help, bring her uh, to get the help and, and comfort her and allow her to speak to you in confidence. That's incredibly helpful. And so psychosocial support can be protective in preventing postpartum depression. And, and the treatment for postpartum depression may include talk therapy, counseling, or medications, typically the SSRI type of medications, the newer antidepressants. And, you know, interpersonal psychotherapy or CBT works wonders for women with postpartum depression and men as well. And um, and also some women may need a medication. The, the SSRI is one of the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They're good for anxiety and depression. Different types work differently. It's a bit of a trial and error. It's going to take at least two weeks for the medication to cross the blood-brain barrier. During that time, you may feel tingling or, or sensations in your arms and legs. And that's essentially that the, you know, you want to think of the medication as going through, kind of swirling through your blood vessels. And after about two weeks, you'll notice those will dissipate and the medication will start to take effect. Um, So, you know, if medication is recommended, you know, it's important to consider all of the factors. Postpartum depression affects about 15% of women around the time of childbirth. And it's also estimated to affect between one and 26% of new fathers. There's also something called postpartum psychosis, and that's a more severe form of a postpartum mood disorder. And that occurs in about one to two per thousand women, and that's after childbirth as well. And that is one of the leading causes of when when mothers, um, you know, kill, take their children's lives. And that occurs in about eight per 100,000 births in the U.S., um, so a new study has found that a baby's sex influence can inf- a sex can influence how much likelier the mom is of developing postpartum depression. And this research comes out of the University of Kent in the United Kingdom. And the study looked at the complete reproductive histories of close to 300 women from contemporary low fertility populations gathered by retrospective survey. So they looked back at the charts to find the link between postpartum depression and having a son or a daughter. And guess what? Giving birth to a baby boy increased postpartum depression chances by a an incredible 71 to 79%. The study also found that having complications during delivery ups those odds by 174%. And and I imagine that would be inclusive of uh, if the baby has had an anoxic incident or has is going to have a disability, um, is premature, uh, is having issues with respiratory um, Com, you know, is is compromised by their respiratory system is compromised. I should say, the finding that having a baby boy or difficult birth increases a woman's risks gives nurses and doctors two new and easy ways to identify women who would particularly benefit from additional support in the first few weeks of of life. And you know, we think, uh, you know, I don't want you to think, uh, oh no, I don't want to have a boy. It's going to increase my risk of postpartum depression. But postpartum depression is avoidable. And it's been shown that if you give women who are at risk extra help and support, uh, it can make it less likely that they will develop 
postpartum depression. Now, I had a woman, I have worked in um, the perinatal services area, and I remember a patient of mine, and I went into her room, and she, it was shortly after the baby was born, and she was sobbing. She was crying so hard. And she kept saying, lightning doesn't strike twice. Lightning doesn't strike twice. And I overheard her saying this through the curtain. No privacy in some of these hospital rooms. And so I had a conversation with her. And as it turned out, her first child had given her so much trouble and worry. He was just one of those kids that one of those, you know, he was about, I think, two and a half or three, that he was uh, just much too much for this mom to bear. And she had a couple of other children that were older than he is. So this is her fourth child. And she had two girls and then this boy. And then she has this fourth boy. And she's just thinking, why didn't I have a girl? Why didn't I have a girl? You know, and so for her, it was actually a disappointment because of her experience with her first boy. Her two girls were angels. And her third child, who was a boy, happened to be a little devil. And... So she thought that she would be suffering the same, that all boys were that way. But you know what? They're not. Some boys are angels. Believe you me. Uh, boys can be just so sweet, you know, starting out right from from birth and, you know, lovely. They're not, they're not all rough and tumble and uh, disobedient or, you know, born with conduct disorder, although you might think that looking at your own husband. Kidding, of course. Um, <laughs> but you know what? Boys are, you know, and it's interesting because in some cultures, it's only the boys that are welcome into the families. And so, uh, you know, you would be interesting to look at the demographics and the data over there to see what the rates of postpartum depression are. Um, you know, so we really have to tease out what what is that reason? And, you know, it can be situational, but, you know, this woman, after some conversation and support and giving her a little bit of extra help in the home, you know, she actually did incredibly well. And her son, um, you know, she returned, you know, a year later to visit everybody. And, you know, she told us that this little guy was the sweetest, easiest going baby that she had ever had. So, you know what? Never give up. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Tonight on the program, we're talking a lot about self-esteem and, and how we perceive ourselves. And, and uh, after a baby, our body image may change uh, for a time or it may persist. And it may feel differently. It may impact your intimate relationships. And it can be very challenging. But I wanted to review a research study with you. Time to time, I do that for you. And uh, this one is by... Um, authors Marky, Charlotte and Marky, and Leanne L. Birch, and it's Understanding Women's Body Satisfaction, the Role of Husbands. Did you know you had a role in this? This study was designed to examine the role women's husbands may play in determining their body satisfaction. The study involved 172 women enrolled who were on average age 37 and a half, and their perceptions of their husband's satisfaction with their bodies and their husband's actual satisfaction with their bodies were also assessed using the body figure rating scale. Did you know that we had one? Women's weight 
status was assessed using a body mass index, one way to measure um, the, you know, whether you are overweight or not. And the results indicated that wives were much more dissatisfied with their bodies than were their husbands, and that wives thought their husbands were much more dissatisfied with their bodies than the husbands actually were. Listen, the husbands just want one thing. They don't really care. Further findings suggested that wives' BMIs were not as strongly related to husbands' satisfaction with their wives' bodies as they were to wives' own satisfaction or perception of their husbands' satisfaction with their bodies. There's a number of risk factors that make women more susceptible than men to body image and eating disturbances, but that does not mean that this is exclusionary for men. Men can also get uh, eating disorders. They're at risk for eating disorders as well. But the influences that affect a woman's body image range from personality vulnerabilities to that ever-growing presence of media, whether it's social media or traditional media, representations of unhealthy women who are incredibly thin and also lead perfect lives that, you know, they're sitting on the bow of a boat, they've got a glass of wine in their hands, they had a baby two months ago, and it's hashtag grateful, blessed, and mom life. While you're sitting at home in your flannel, no shirt on because you've got mastitis from your breastfeeding and uh, you're feeling down and you don't have a lot of help and you're just trying to get through one day until the next. And so we have this unhealthy media and more and more the the public is engaging in this. And so women look at other women's lives after they've had the baby. This picture could be taken from a year ago. You have no idea. But people are not that truthful on Facebook, let me tell you. Um, so you never want to compare yourself to somebody else. And that's what a lot of women do. And that will contribute to women having a more negative connotation of their own body image. Everybody is beautiful. You know, as long as you are healthy, lead a healthy life, tell yourself a few lies about that, go for it. Um, The influences that I've mentioned are not the only psychosocial contributors to a woman's body dissatisfaction. And body image concerns are not just about body size, but they're about the woman's role in their larger socio cultural context. And feminist explanations for the disproportionate number of women affected by body image issues and weight range from discussion of our cultural obsession with thinness to issues of control and the need for women to define themselves in our society that provides conflicting messages about femininity. It's been suggested that present Sociocultural context encourages women's feelings of inadequacy in failing to obtain the impossible, unrealistic, emaciated body image currently endorsed by media and modeling agencies around the globe. And when you look at some of these photographs of these incredibly thin women, don't forget that I know this for a fact. The, the camera, the, the, the whatever camera it is, whether it's rolling or still, adds at least 10. In my case, it adds 20 pounds <laughs> to me. But so these women who look normal on a magazine, you know, maybe thin, but 
you know, they're incredibly thin if you see them in real life. And so many women I know who have been in modeling have said that, you know, they were a pound overweight and, you know, they may have had a, a modeling gig in Italy or something and and they weren't certain if they were going in 10 days from then because they had to lose two pounds and keep it off. And, you know, and when they're stick thin to begin with and six feet tall it's diff- and hungry, it's difficult to do that. So the women's body image concerns are, in fact, partial, partially attributable to the sociocultural role that women play. And so that's why it's important that we examine body image concerns as a result of the relationships maintained by women so we can counteract this. So we can actually say, hey, guys, and I say this to a lot of women in my clinical practice, um, they have body image issues. They're like, you know, my thigh, I haven't, literally I had a patient say one time that she had this kind of extra inch, she was stick thin, she had this extra inch on her thigh and she didn't like her husband to see that. Uh, Many women, about 84% of women are concerned about their abdominal weight, do something about it. (laughs) They're not comfortable with it. But, you know, um, so they don't want their husband, their male partner to touch their stomach. This is a real issue. I had a woman in my clinical practice who, you know, I couldn't figure out their problem until they told me that she actually didn't take her pants off for sex. I'm like, okay, how does that work? Um, so we had to go, we had to really step back there, really peel back the layers of the onion. And so, you know, I think it's really important that, um, that a sample of women um, understand that women, you know, that they realize that it's it's their negative perception of themselves. It's not the person that they are in love with or in a relationship with that is bothered by their body. In fact, they love their bodies typically. Um, and, you know, it's it's often about the intimacy. And so many women are, you know, have dissatisfied sex lives because they're embarrassed about their bodies. Um, you know, some husband, some husbands may actually make fun of a woman's weight or they may be really bothered by a woman's weight and not say something about their wife's weight. And But, you know, you can feel those vibes or they might say, you know, a comment like, don't have that second chicken leg or something like that um, in front of friends and family. Not really nice. You'll never get sex that way, guys. Um, but women's husbands are part of the social constant construct this context and in talking about women's body dissatisfaction. And so the there's very little research, a paucity of research on body satisfaction among married couples. Um, but men place a great deal of importance on women's body size and shape when they initiate romantic relationships, initiate, not just at the beginning. This actually flies out the window a little bit because you know what? Guys kind of lose you know, the appeal as well. They may uh, gain some weight, particularly in the midsection. You know, people kind of grow old and spread out a little bit uh, the longer they are together. Um, so that's just at the beginning. Or that's sort of that ideal woman, you know, that, uh, that a man wants. They just think they want tall and thin and blonde and big breasts and a booty and the whole nine yards. And, you know, but that's not necessarily what they're attracted to. That could be placed in front of them, but they could choose somebody else that their neurotransmitters are saying, you know, you're the one for me. Um, Women are very bothered 
by their partner's criticisms about their weight. So so watch that. And that's in, in that's substantiated by research done by Murray and Beaumont. And that's, you know, older research. So we've been studying that for a little bit um, longer. And they report being more likely than men to adjust their own eating behaviors and feelings about their bodies in accordance with their significant others' preferences. So they might not have that extra dessert or they might turn away that milkshake if they're eating in front of you, um, whereas men typically don't do that. Um, you know, but it's very important how your partner perceives your body contributes to your body image. And, you know, the question is, you know, should it? And are you actually gauging that correctly? Why don't you just have a conversation with your lover, with your male partner, with your husband, just say, you know, I've gained a little bit of weight, maybe since the baby or since stress or, you know, financial issues or whatever, you know, you know, are you still attracted to me? And, you know, nine times out of 10, you'll find that he is and that your body dissatisfaction is much greater than how he feels about your body. I'm sure he thinks it's beautiful. I am Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. This is Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Just a little gentle reminder to put, make sure the children are in bed, that they didn't get up again and start listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. We're getting a little risque here as we do typically during the end of the program. And, uh, you know, a little fortnight might be good for those kids. Uh, I get so many patients presenting to my clinical practice who actually say to me, they're bored in the bedroom. They've been with the same partner for many, many moons. They think that spicing things up in the bedroom would be a good idea, but they haven't got a clue how to do it. So this is a little refresher course with my lust list for you. Just a little early Christmas present. And you know what? Not everything is going to work for everybody, so don't worry about it. If you hear something, you might want to try it. Try it. If you like it, great. If you don't, fantastic too. Hey, you didn't like it, but you might've had some fun in the process. So lots of times people run out of new ideas in the bedroom, especially if they've been with somebody for a long time. You know, one of the most common things is how often should we be having sex? I can't tell you that. (laughs) That's up to you, your age and stage and, you know, communication between your partner. If your partner is happy having sex once a week, okay, that's great. If you want to have sex five or six times a week, you know, and they want to have one, well, a little desire discrepancy there. So you might want to talk about that meet in the middle. Um, You know, people love to talk about expressing love, and that can be very tender and sweet. Uh, You know, but sometimes people too, they feel like they should be having sex. And, you know, every couple goes through dry spells. And, you know, sometimes sex falls off the bed, as I say. And many couples say to me, we just stopped having sex. I don't know why. I can't really tell you why? I had one woman, I asked her if it had been 10 years since she'd had sex with her husband and they'd been married for a number of years, but no excuse. And so I said, why did that happen? She said, I don't know. And I said, does he have any intimacy problems? Because they were in their 50s. And and she said, I said, does he have any erection function issues? Are you intimate? That's what I said to her. Are you intimate? She said, oh, yes, we're intimate. And I said, okay, does he have any erection function issues? And she said, I don't know. And I said, you don't know. Um, 
And I said, well, you told me that you were intimate. And of course, everybody defines intimacy in different ways. And she said, well, when I said we were intimate, what I meant is that when he comes home after work, he gives me a kiss over the range. So the hardest thing between them was the stove. Anyway, so we had to get down to it. And with that lady, she needed a little help with vaginal dryness, a little help with lingerie, um, you know, trying it on, picking out what she liked, feeling sexy, nice set of uh, pumps. Every woman should have at least 37 pairs of pumps in their closet, (laughs) one in every color. Um, But you know what? There's other things you can play with in bed. And one of those things is power. I love the subject of power. So, you know, take a look at who is usually in control in your bedroom. If you don't want to change that up, who is the one who usually initiates? Who does the seduction? Why don't you change those roles? If one person typically drives during your intimacy, during your sexual encounter, you know what? Give the driver's seat, give the steering wheel to your partner. And so playing with power is a way to, uh, you can do that by exploring being a little bit more submissive or a little bit more dominant, you know, just slowly let things rip, get more comfortable uh, with yourself, with your body. You can start with turning the lights off if you want to get into the cowgirl position, which you're typically not into or or something like that. Um so there's a huge continuum for sex and power. And if you've never experienced experience submission or dominance, this is a time to take this opportunity. And, you know, you might think neither one of us are, are, are submissive, neither one of us are dominant, but there is always one who's just a little bit more. But if neither one of you are or one of you isn't, you know, just play that role a little bit more. Most couples like some level of dominance and submission in their sexual encounters. So you might want to add a blindfold, just take a scarf or a necktie out of your drawer. I like to use things that are in the closets. (laughs) I don't want you spending any money on this right yet. Um, But you know what? Getting into whips, that's like the the most popular gift on some site that I saw recently. (laughs) Anyway, um, spanking and that type of thing. But go slow. Know your boundaries. Explore power together. You know, so that seduction of your partner is critical and that will certainly excite things. Also, you want to pay attention to your senses. Do you ever find yourself worrying or thinking about something totally non-sex related during sex? Like what color am I going to paint the ceiling or what have I got to do tomorrow or when is this going to be over? I don't have two minutes today. You want to tune into your senses. It's mind That'll help you connect to what feels good and also help you stay present. You've got to be in the moment for sex. And many, many people check out. Women have a tendency to check out because they are so busy these days. So... Uh, you don't want to be worrying about those things outside of sex. You want to have a negative conversation before then. You want to focus on your genitalia. Actually picture that in your mind, okay? Uh, you must think about that for sure because that will certainly increase blood flow to the genitalia and, um, you know, it'll make your orgasm that much better. And, you know, thinking about your sense of smell is a good place to start because scent is highly erotic. Also, you might want to light candles, play music, bring some beautiful fruits into the bedroom. You can have a little seduction bowl in your house. Write down all the things that you want to try sexually, okay? That's also a very good idea. You know, the BDSM and kink gets a bad name, but there are so many lovely couples who adore each other and they respect each other, but they're so incredibly polite with one another. But they they feel so close, they have a hard time finding that 
eroticism in their sex life. So they, in other words, they respect each other so much that they feel uncomfortable letting things leave that vanilla, (laughs) that spoonful of vanilla. I had a gentleman in my practice and he had actually cheated on his wife for such a long time. He loved her, but he said to me, you know, I, he went to massage parlors and uh, prostitutes and, and he still had a sexual relationship with his wife, but he said, you know, I, I respect her and I just feel like I can't do the things with her that I do with these other women. So, which is so sad because not even having that conversation about tender, sweet lovemaking, which is so divine and so incredible, you know, it, it means, it means somebody has lost out on one of the best pleasures of life. The other thing about sex, you got to do it on the regular. Okay. It's like exercise. As I told you about the patient earlier, she stopped doing doing it. It's hard to do, start doing it again. She had to come to me <laughs> to tell me how to get to to have me tell her how to get going on that. You know, if if you hit a dry spell, be aware of it. Keep things going. A quickie is just as good sometimes, especially if you're both really busy, you know, raising kids, building a business, whatever. I heard a retired patient in my clinical practice the other day, and she said, you know, don't ever retire. She said, I'm so busy. Everybody asks me if I want to do all these things, and I never turn anybody down. So even retired couples can be too busy. The other thing I often suggest is make yourself a little beautiful, ladies. Make yourself a little sex toolbox and keep it tucked away in your night table so that the kids can't get it. Put a lock and key on it. You want to put some lubes and condoms in there. Uh, you know, add some sex toys, some vibrators, maybe some. Uh, the number one sex fantasy for women is to be lightly tied up. So you want to add some restraints. Just head on down to Home Depot and grab them there. You want to add some porn in there, some erotica, some dress up costumes. You don't need much. You can have a bow tie. You can have gloves, you know, uh, gloves that don't have uh, fingers anyway. um, So your fingers are exposed is a nice way uh, to do that. There's some dice that you can toss in there. So it doesn't have to be a gigantic box. It can just have the contents or hold the contents that you hold dear that will help with your intimate life. And you know what? Let sex evolve because that's what happens when we're in a relationship with somebody. You know, it starts out one way and you want to just, you know, keep that trust going. Um, you know, especially if people shut down or, or people have medical conditions, you know, keep that intimacy going and always remember to be vulnerable. It's vulnerability that actually allows us to explore and have the most precious and beautiful Um, sex life and intimate life. And so, you know, be in the moment and vulnerability is never going through the motion. So it's not that duty sex that, oh, I got to do it now uh, or the honey-do list. You know, it's never on the honey-do list. There's, I hate that term, but anyway, um, (laughs) there's other things on the honey-do list, but you know what? You could have your own honey-do list. You could create a new honey-do list. This is a new idea for me of mine. And I'm always trying to explore and be creative and think of new ideas. Have a honey-do list that has what you like in the bedroom on it and nothing else. I am Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.